Welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Ruth explores Lords of Waterdeep, I have a spooky time in Apocrypha, Meeple Lady visits Lisboa, and Mason gets abstract with Clask. But first, Mike investigates Mr. Jack. I've been going through making a considered effort to play my quote-unquote shelf of shame games lately. Which means a lot of new games played once as I try to get my unplayed list down to single digits or a more reasonable number and make quick gut decisions on what should be kept and should be sold. Most of these, as it happens in my family, are played two-player. While most are good, they generally leave me thinking about what makes for a great two-player game. A game like Mr. Jack. Mr. Jack was originally a 2006 release, though there was a more recent 10th anniversary edition from Hurricane that I believe was mostly art changes, but just in case, I'm here talking about my old version. In Mr. Jack, you and your opponent match wits as one player is Jack the Ripper trying to escape and the other player is an investigator trying to figure out which of the eight characters on the board is really Mr. Jack. Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Montblanc have taken a true deduction game like Clue and distilled it down to its most simple and head-to-head glory. There's no bluster, no shouting, no bravado or browbeating of social deductions here. Mr. Jack knows what character they are and must work to either stay hidden in the shadows or out with the rest, whichever keeps them in the majority and therefore gives the investigator the least options. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself again. Sorry. In Mr. Jack, you have a board with eight tokens and two sets of eight cards, one for each character token. The Mr. Jack player draws a random card from the alibi deck and then sets it to the side of the board. This is who the real Mr. Jack is. Then the investigation deck is shuffled and four cards are drawn. These are the four characters that will be activated this round, with the investigator choosing a card first. They then move the character's token per the distance shown on the card and activate the character's special ability. The point is to either move the character tokens into the light and or beside someone, or to move them into the shadows and or off by themselves. Now it's Mr. Jack's turn to choose and move two characters. Lastly, the investigator takes the last card and activates that character. Once all four cards are used, Mr. Jack reveals if they can be seen or not. Tokens that can no longer possibly be Mr. Jack are flipped to show they can't be him anymore and play moves on to the next round where you use the four cards that were not used in the last round. But now Mr. Jack goes first with only one card. After that, you shuffle all eight cards back together and start over. And maybe you're wondering, well, what's the point of moving people who I've eliminated as suspects? Well, because you can move them next to other characters to make them be seen, or use their special abilities to affect the other remaining suspects. The characters remain useful and interesting even after they've been eliminated as a suspect. This continues alternating back and forth until one of the three win conditions are met. The investigator has brought an innocent character to the same hex as the suspected Mr. Jack and accuses them. If they are correct, the investigator wins. If they are wrong, Mr. Jack wins. Mr. Jack can also win by escaping the board when there are no witnesses, or by running the clock out and surviving all eight rounds. Now, based on that description, you might be thinking that the investigator has a difficult time and often loses. But in actuality, and this is one of my few criticisms of the game, it's the opposite. The investigator seems to have a distinct advantage. Eight rounds is usually more than enough time in order to figure out who Mr. Jack is. 
So much an advantage that in the sequel game, The Phantom of the Opera, they added an adjustable difficulty scale for making it easier or harder for the investigator to win. In our house, the investigator wins even more often, as I am usually relegated to the role of Mr. Jack. And as a big Sherlock Holmes fan, and in addition to feeling like Holmes as an investigator, Holmes and Watson are both characters in the game. Holmes' ability is that he always draws a card from the alibi deck, therefore eliminating a character from consideration. Watson carries a lantern with him that shines a light in whatever direction he is facing, thereby illuminating any character in the path of the light. I'll leave you to explore the other characters and their abilities, but we've found them all very useful at times, and all pretty thematic. And if you ever tire the base characters, there's an expansion for both the original and the anniversary edition that adds five and six characters respectively, each with new abilities. We generally just shuffle them in and choose randomly which eight we will play with that game. There are also three other editions of Mr. Jack, the aforementioned Phantom of the Opera edition, which is similar in feel, though we prefer the original due to the Sherlock Holmes tie-in, a Mr. Jack in New York, which I haven't played, and Mr. Jack Pocket, which has a drastically different feel as a much more stripped-down game that's more or less a puzzle, but also a very enjoyable game. Look, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you like deduction, and you like playing two-player games, in our opinion, you can't get much better than Mr. Jack. Especially if you have a regular opponent and you can start to get into each other's heads trying to pull off bluffs and devil bluffs and surely I have her fooled this time. No, seriously? She figured it out already? I don't understand how- this is like those five orange pips. It's just such a fun and fantastic game. So that's Mr. Jack. If you have any further questions or comments about it, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here with a segment inspired by a recent rediscovery. Every now and again, I pull a game from my shelves that hasn't hit the table in years. Often, this simply results in my realizing a game no longer has a place in my collection. But then there are those other moments when within just a few turns, we find ourselves looking at each other and asking somewhat incredulously why we haven't been playing this game. Last week, this happened with Lords of Waterdeep, the 2012 Dungeons & Dragons-themed worker placement game designed by Peter Lee and Rodney Thompson, published by Wizards of the Coast. The game's a fairly straightforward implementation of a common formula. Place your pawns on spaces to collect resources, and then use those resources to fulfill contracts that you earned from placing a pawn in a different space. In Lords of Waterdeep, you're taking on the role of one of the mysterious mass lords who control the city. The pawns you're placing are your agents who will be visiting locations within Waterdeep in order to recruit resources in the form of adventurers. These heroes that you gather you'll then send out in teams to fulfill quests for points and other rewards. There are a few tweaks also made to the formula. One of these involves players being able to build more action spaces in the form of buildings that will provide a bonus to their owner when others use them. More interesting to me is the harbor spot. An agent placed in Waterdeep Harbor lets their owner play an intrigue card from their hand. These cards can let players gain resources, sometimes giving other players some, sometimes taking away. But they also provide more take that in the form of mandatory quests. These are cards that are played on other players. Once in a player's tableau, they prevent them from completing any of the quests they have until they've completed the mandatory quest, which is always worth far less of a reward for the resources given than you typically get. At the end of the round, those sneaky agents sent to cause intrigue in the harbor are then reassigned to open spaces, letting them essentially take a second action, but at the cost of having to take whatever 
whatever's left. And the board does tend to get pretty full by the end of a round, regardless of player count. Unlike other worker placement games that remove spaces at lower player counts, Lords of Waterdeep instead just gives its players extra agents to use. This means you can do a lot more in a two-player game, but by the end of the round, things are still going to be pretty tight when it comes to your placements. And to make up for the fact that players can build extra spaces during a game, well, everyone gets an extra agent at the halfway point in order to stop that from opening things up too much and losing tension. I enjoy the game at two, three, and four players, knowing full well that while the amount I can do will change with the numbers, the overall feel of the game doesn't. And with so many quest cards, intrigue cards, and potential buildings, the game can handle a lot of play without feeling stale, because you're going to see different options and opportunities coming out each time. This is probably why it used to be one of our most played titles, and why honestly I could see it making its way back up there now that we've played it again and realized how much we enjoy it. Fans of the original source material are going to recognize familiar names and places as they play the game, which adds a little extra something. Everyone else, however, is just going to experience a fairly generic-seeming fantasy setting as they gather some cubes. The board itself is a very large city map, while the quest and entry cards have a lot of nice illustrations and added flavor for those who want that extra touch of story. Though I will point out that while linen finished, the cards are pretty thin and curve easily, especially when shuffled. The punchboard coins also have a coating that can cause them to stick together during storage, so you have to be careful sometimes to make sure you're giving someone the right number. These are things that I can deal with, although I occasionally want to flatten out the decks, but your mileage may vary on that, and if you know it's something that'll frustrate you, I just want you to be aware. The box insert itself has also been somewhat controversial. I still use it, though it does require the box to be stored horizontally because it makes setup faster, but a lot of people don't like it. In my opinion, the box is so tall I'm not going to store it vertically anyway, and it's able to accommodate my aftermarket wooden D&D bowls, shaped heroes that replace the original cubes. So even though I tend to replace a lot of inserts, Waterdeep has stayed as it came. Lords of Waterdeep is an excellent game for introducing worker placement while still being enjoyable for more seasoned gamers. For my husband and I, it's a game we can play while chatting and eating, having fun while occasionally trying to stab each other in the back. It does take up a good amount of table space, so it's more of a game for home than for playing in public. But since that insert means you have to keep the box horizontal or everything's going to go everywhere, well, it's not necessarily the most portable game anyway. I have a feeling we're going to be playing more often now that we've rediscovered it. And we also have the expansion, which I haven't even discussed. It adds extra modules that let you mix it up and change the feel of the game. Lords of Waterdeep is a game I highly recommend if you're a fan of pure worker placement, offering as it does an extremely approachable experience for those days you're a little bit more tired and don't need to be mentally taxed by a heavier game. So feel free to let me know your experiences in Waterdeep, and when I'm not sending out heroes to save the city, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. It's late October a week before Halloween when this review drops, and my mind is turning to seasonal things. Dracula movies starring Christopher Lee, peanut butter cups shaped like pumpkins, and of course, spooky games. What better time to try Apocrypha Adventure Card Game? Apocrypha was published in 2017 by Lone Shark Games and credited to nine designers, notably Mike Selinker, the creator of 2013's Pathfinder Adventure Card Game. 
Apocrypha is a follow-up to Pathfinder, but while Pathfinder has a classic D&D-ish theme, Apocrypha moves the setting to urban horror. This reskinning is a great advantage to me, because to be honest, I'm not a fan of traditional orcs and elves, sword and sorcery type themes. I know a lot of people love that, but it just leaves me cold. But a game set in a version of the modern world where mysterious evil walks the streets and the players are the only ones who can see it and stop it? That's what Apocrypha is about, and sign me up. Apocrypha is very much a card game. The box contains no board, instead you get a lot of cards and a lot of dice. Each player has a deck of cards that represent items and abilities. Players go to different locations, which are stacks of cards representing enemies to defeat and items to collect, both of which you do by rolling dice. There are mechanisms for players to assist each other, mainly by sharing cards, and locations can be closed, removing that stack of cards from the game. The box comes with a series of unique games, and each game has its own setup and its own win condition, usually about defeating a specific enemy or closing all the locations. Players continue their characters from one game to the next, building better decks as they go by saving item cards they collected during each game. Characters in Apocrypha don't level up the way they do in Pathfinder, but they do gain a persistent ability called a Fragment in every game. Fragments can only be used once, but you can have up to nine, and each one offers a powerful boost that, if used at the right moment, might save a game. For players of Pathfinder Adventure card game, this should all sound pretty familiar. Apocrypha is known as a sequel to Pathfinder, a reskin, a follow-up, whatever you call it, they are very similar games. Unfortunately, I'd never played Pathfinder, so I didn't have that prior experience to fall back on. This brings me to my main issue with Apocrypha. The game is not easy to learn. Twice, I set aside a day off to teach myself Apocrypha, got the box out, picked a character, started reading the rulebook, and after a few impenetrable pages, gave up and put it all away unplayed. At the time, I couldn't find a how-to-play video on YouTube, although there is a good official how-to video. I just couldn't find it because I searched for Apocrypha How-to-Play, and it's not called How-to-Play, it's called Enter Here. This is an excellent example of why the Apocrypha learning curve is so steep. There is so much iconography and terminology to learn. Each turn has multiple steps, and most steps have multiple substeps, with new terms for each. Sometimes these terms are intuitive, but sometimes they are really not. If you can even find an unknown term in the rulebook, which has no index, it's likely to just restate the unclear thing without adding anything useful. I get the value of all this terminology. They wanted to create an immersive experience, build a world players can inhabit, and that makes sense. But these terms and icons are a powerful barrier to entry. We've played four times, and I still feel like we're trying to figure out the basics. The steep learning curve makes more sense when you consider that Apocrypha isn't meant to be a casual game you could try out in a game cafe, play once, and have fun even if you never played it again. It's meant to be played many times over a long campaign. The base box, called The World, comes with two chapters, each of which includes nine scenarios that can be played in any order. There are two planned expansions, The Flesh and The Devil, each of which will add four new chapters and 400 new cards. A game that demands that much replay is an ambitious goal, especially in today's cult of the new market, where many games get played only a couple of times. I've heard that both the Apocrypha and Pathfinder adventure card games are supposed to create the experience of a pencil and paper RPG without a GM. I don't think Apocrypha achieves that, but it does create a spooky atmosphere. The art is attractive, and the card and scenario text is creepy, clever, and often funny. Item cards range from straightforward weapons, I'm fond of the murder board myself, to arcane objects like charm bracelets, 
cameras that steal souls, even cursed teddy bears. The characters are basically thumbnail sketches, though I suspect the intent is that we create character narratives ourselves during play. I appreciate their efforts to include diversity in the character options, although my character is a young African-American man who's a political activist and a voodooist. The former is an interesting, relevant choice that I'm really glad to see in a game. The latter might be a bit problematic, especially since he's the only black male character in the game. I hope the expansions continue including diverse characters and allow for a range of different kinds of people. So do I recommend Apocrypha Adventure Card Game? If you like creepy games and urban horror themes, if you want a long-term campaign, if you don't mind that the first few games are confusing, and if you already know how to play Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, then yes. Your first game of Apocrypha may not be stellar, but if you can invest the time, it's a slow burn that pays off. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not fighting evil with murder boards, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, this is Meeple Lady, and today I'm going to be talking about Lisboa, a game published by Eagle Griffin Games, designed by Vitala Serta, with gorgeous artwork from Ian O'Toole. It plays 2-4 to four players, and even though the box says 60-120 to 120 minutes, my experience is... It plays a little bit longer than that with maximum players. Before we begin, Lisboa is by far one of the most complicated games I've ever had to teach, learn, and play. In real life, rules explanations can take about 30 to 45 minutes, so if heavy games are not your bag, feel free to skip ahead. I totally will not be offended. Lisboa is beautiful, crunchy, and has a little bit of everything that a heavy gamer like myself enjoys. The game has area control, set collection, card drafting, and tile placement. And probably most importantly, you get to decide your endgame scoring conditions. The purplish-blue board game, whose color scheme is reminiscent of the Portuguese tiles the city is known for, is set in 1755, when Lisboa was struck by many natural disasters, an earthquake, fires, and a tsunami, pretty much leveling the city. And now we're all tasked with helping the city recover economically. We are taking turns to clear rubble, build ships and sell goods, get permits to construct public buildings, and set up shops so the city can prosper. And we all want wigs. Lots and lots of wigs, which are the VPs in this game. The board is divided into two main parts. One side shows all the actions you can do on your turn, and the right side is filled with rubble and street locations for storefronts and public buildings. What the game boils down to is its multi-use cards, and players picking from one of two actions with those cards from their hand of five cards. You can either tuck your cards into your portfolio or play cards into the royal court to meet with a king, prime minister, or master builder. Those two main actions, either tuck or play, however, unlock a spiderweb of many, many other actions. If you decide to tuck a card, you receive the reward or penalty for tucking that card, and then the card either gives influence for later or some permanent ability. You then can sell goods on an open ship or trade with the nobles, which will require goods. There are four goods in the game gold, cloth, books, and tools. Each noble wants a specific type of good, but all of them will take gold. If you trade with the nobles, you can perform two different state actions if you meet the required good for that particular noble. There are six different state actions you can choose from. Recruiting officials, which you place on the board and will affect how other players meet with nobles. Acquiring a plan, which you will need to build public buildings. Building a ship, which gives you influence and wigs when people sell goods to your boat producing goods, if you have a storefront on the map, meeting the cardinal, which gives you clergy tiles and benefits, 
and getting royal favors, which allows you to follow someone's noble visit. If you decide not to tuck your card, but instead play a card, you can visit a noble or gain the benefit from a treasury card. To visit a noble, you have to pay influence, and depending on who you visit, you could build a store, which is calculated by the rubble left at that intersection, take a degree card, criteria that will score you wigs at the end of the game, or open a public building, which requires you to already have a building permit of the same color in your possession and workers on the board. As more stores are built in the city, it becomes less expensive to take that action because the rubble slowly gets cleared. Rubble cubes are randomly placed at the start of the game, so at the intersection of each storefront location, the price is calculated based on how many cubes are still there and which color, with beige being the most expensive and blue the cheapest. When you build, you remove one cube and then pay the cost of the remaining cubes, and this is how you collect sets of rubble on your player board, which will then unlock more spaces for cards to tuck and progress the game. Also, when you satisfy the requirements and build a public building, you then gain the rubble the public building will sit on. And then if there is a storefront along that street where the public building was just placed, the storefront scores VPs. In all, a storefront can score up to three times if public buildings are placed on the north, east, and west sides of the board. So after you either tuck a card or play a card, you carry out the actions that correspond with the tucking or playing, and then you take a card from one of the face-up piles, and your turn ends. The game is played out over two identical periods. The first period ends when someone collects two sets of rubble, or three of the four piles of cards are depleted. The second period ends when someone collects four sets of rubble, or three of the four piles of cards are depleted as well. Lisboa manages to keep other players engaged even when it's not their turn. As with other Lacerda games, there's an option to follow another player's main action. At the end of the game, you score any decrees you've collected, the various streets are scored according to who has the most storefronts on that street, and a couple other items such as ships, influence, and money. The interconnectivity of all these actions is what I love most about Lisboa, which I believe is a masterpiece. Each action isn't difficult per se, but there's a multitude of micro-steps that need to first happen in order for you to do something large, like build a public building. And that's the super quick overview of Lisboa. This is Meeple Lady for the Five Eye Games. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Clask. I've been talking about dexterity games a lot recently because I deeply love them, there are amazing new ones that come out all the time, and because I think they're among the most accessible of modern games. A modern dexterity game can draw a crowd of strangers in a public space, can engage otherwise resistant family and friends, and can get people asking that important question, hey, why haven't I heard of this? It's a beautiful opener to the, well, you know there are lots of really good games nowadays, I bet you haven't heard of a lot of them, conversation without gushing with overwhelming detail and depth about the hundreds of games that we all own. Prior to a couple of weeks ago, I was aware of Classic's popularity, but had firmly placed it in my mental category of tabletop hockey games, along with Waykick and other cool, huge wooden things that I really like playing, but would never actually probably own. Having not played Classic, I assumed, like most interpretations, it was a knock-the-disc-into-the-opposite-goal game, and it is, sort of. Classic is set apart from other tabletop hockey games because it is a magnetic game. So what does that actually mean? Well, Classic is a board on a little stand. It sort of resembles a soccer field with a hole on each end, and you have a striker and a handle, and they are magnetized to each other. The striker goes on the table surface, and the handle is magnetically held to the striker underneath the table. As you move your hand around underneath the table, the striker moves on top of the table. 
This is not the revolutionary aspect of class. There are other games that do this as well. The strikers themselves have magnetic tops that are highly attractive to the three free-floating magnetic pips in the middle of the field. Get too close to the pips, and they stick to your striker. If two or more of the pips are stuck, your opponent gets a point. If you accidentally pull your striker into the scoring cutout, your opponent gets a point. So only about a third of the strategy in Clask is knocking the ball into your opponent's goal. You're actively trying to knock the white pips toward your opponent, lure your opponent toward the pips, and force your opponent to make the mistake of falling into their own goal. Kickoff is from one of your two corners, and very good players, which is not me, can use the kickoff to drive the ball into one of the pips and have it stick to their opponent's striker. Because I am very bad at Clask, I am not in fact able to do that, but I can see how it would be a very strong strategy. A game plays to six points, and if two players are evenly matched, games are typically five to six or four to six. For my several dozen plays, which I realize is low compared to the hundreds of plays early Clask adopters have racked up, it's turned out to be a lot more about finesse than I ever would have originally expected. In Clask, hitting the ball very hard is often the worst strategy, because the board is very small and the ball is very light. More often than not, hitting it hard results in it bouncing around and around and around and not actually doing anything or going anywhere, though I have occasionally scored on myself this way. And because the board is very small, scoring in class relies heavily on the use of bank shots and ricochets. Because you're forced to avoid the magnetic pips, which move around the board differently every game as they're struck by the ball, this makes the replay in class more satisfying to me. In a straight tabletop hockey game, which I am also very bad at by the way, a very good player can use relatively the same strategy all the time, but Clask forces you to monitor a constantly changing board state and adjust your strategy accordingly. Clask retails at around $40, and while I think that's very reasonable for a tabletop dexterity game, especially when you're going to play hundreds of times, I do have some issues with the materials they chose to use. Because the field surface and strikers are all plastic, straight out of the box, playing the game makes a terrible noise that honestly made my skin crawl a little bit like nails on a chalkboard. Because the field material is a slightly rough plastic and not perfectly smooth, the striker scratches the surface almost constantly as it moves back and forth. To counteract this, and frankly to make it at all playable for me, I put felt sticky back discs on both the striker and the handle, where they come in contact with the board surface. This instantly and significantly improved both the tactile feel of the game as well as the noise and replayability. It also means that my board won't get all scratched up, and all I have to do is replace the felt pads occasionally. I've seen that other people use some Teflon tape dots for the same purpose, but it leads me to ask, why is the board so easily scratched? It can't possibly be the publisher's intent for the boards to get all scratched up and eventually warp, so why not include 35 cents worth of pads to improve the gameplay and the life of the product? It's a disappointing aspect of an otherwise great game. I absolutely think that there's $40 worth of fun in a copy of Clask, but unlike a Euro game, say Viticulture, which retails for about the same price, you will not be passing your Clask set down to your kids or grandkids. You'll be lucky if it doesn't wear out before their teens. So who should buy Clask? People who want a rules-light, strategy-deep dexterity game. People who want a tabletop hockey experience but don't want to invest in a large set. People who want to flick a ball around in a box. And people who love to yell and scream when their stupid striker falls into the ditch over and over again. I give Clask 3 out of 3 magnetic white dots stuck to your skull, and no matter how strenuously you shake back and forth, they won't come off and you die from shaking your head that hard. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. You've been listening to The 5 by the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.